Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And that's what we're going to talk about today, our favorite topic, Section 230. This is one of those subjects that gets a lot of attention, but is so difficult to unpack. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And that's why we've brought ITIF's resident experts to help us figure this whole thing out. Elise Dick and Ashley Johnson are both policy analysts at ITIF. Elise focuses on AR, VR innovation and policy, including privacy, safety, and accountability. And Ashley researches and writes about issues like privacy, security, and platform regulation. They're the hosts of a new limited series podcast, Elise and Ashley Break the Internet, which will take a deep dive into the ongoing Section 230 debate. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, always down to talk about Section 230. (laughs) Good, because I have a lot of confusion around this topic. So thank you. So given that, let's start small. What is Section 230 and why does it matter? So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act was passed by Congress in 1996. And it is the law in the U.S. governing what's called intermediary liability for online services. And that basically means who is responsible when someone says or does something harmful or illegal online, particularly when that has to do with third-party content. And that can be uh, an online marketplace, like a posting in an online marketplace. It can be a social media post. It can be video on YouTube, all these different things that users submit to the internet. Section 230 basically says that the platforms where users host them to are not liable for that content in most cases. Um, And Section 230 specifically has two provisions called C1 and C2. And C1 does basically what I said. It says that online platforms aren't liable for the content that their users post, again, in most cases. And C2 says that platforms are also not liable when they act in good faith to remove content that they believe is harmful or objectionable. So why does Section 230 matter? It's important for a couple of reasons. The first is innovation. Section 230 really allows platforms to develop content moderation approaches that work best for their business model, their platform, and their audience. The second is competition. It allows platforms to develop these moderation approaches as well as their business models without threatening potential litigation that could hold them back from from innovating new approaches. And finally, it's important for free speech, for the users themselves and for the platforms who want to communicate speech. It allows content to go up online and it allows platforms to decide what is appropriate and what is not, which allows for greater civic discourse and conversations on the Internet. So, you know, one of the, the, I think, interesting things about Washington in terms of tech policy, it's kind of like we have a attention deficit disorder and Washington can only handle one thing at a time in its brain. So we go through these fads and one of them was net neutrality. That's all we could talk about. And then it was privacy and then facial recognition. And now it's 230, 230, 230, What's going on? Why, why 230 now? Well, there are a lot of growing regulatory debates in the U.S., but also globally around different types of content moderation. What belongs on the internet? What shouldn't be on the internet? And there are also a lot of new and emerging mediums, which is sort of Elise's expertise, so I'll let her add anything here. 
Yeah, you know, 230 doesn't just apply to the Facebooks and the Googles and the Twitters of the world. They apply to web hosting services and also to a lot of new technologies we see coming up like podcasts and newsletters and the area I work on, augmented and virtual reality, such as multiplayer games or multi-user platforms. I want to dive a little deeper into kind of the political arena here um, and how it relates to the policy. And maybe we can start by talking about who are some of the key players involved in the debate and what they're saying. Because like Rob said, this is just one of those hot issues right now. And, you know, I, I often compare it to net neutrality in that there's lots of kind of basement experts, but nobody's really saying the same thing. And so I'd like to go deeper there so that we can get to the right answer, maybe. So there are a lot of a lot of different voices in this debate, policymakers and stakeholders and just average internet users. In terms of policymakers, there are sort of two competing stances between Democrats and Republicans. The most common Democrat stance is that Section 230 motivates online services to leave up content that is harmful but still legal that Democrats believe doesn't belong on the Internet, like forms of hate speech, uh, harassment, bullying, misinformation. Whereas the more common Republican stance on Section 230 is that it allows online companies to remove too much speech and there are some allegations of political bias among online companies and, you know, censoring conservative opinions on these larger tech platforms. But outside of just the the halls of Congress, I guess, any changes to Section 230 would impact tech and non-tech companies of all sizes. Any company that does business on the internet pretty much would be impacted in some way, not just these big tech companies that are sort of the focus of the debate. And then we also have people on um, from a variety of, of different perspectives, uh, from the news media, international human rights, people who can talk about victims of online abuse. These are the sorts of people that we're going to be talking to on our podcast because there's a lot of different interest from a lot of different people. Ashley, you bring up a really, I think, interesting point that I don't think most people have really thought through, which is there are some Democrats like President Biden in his campaign. Now, Bruce Reed, a senior advisor to uh, the president has said we should just get rid of 230. Uh, and then there are some leading Republicans who say we should get rid of 230. But they want to do that for 180 degrees opposite reasons. You know, the Democrats think if we get rid of 230, all these platforms will stop, you know, putting up speech they don't like. And uh, Republicans think, oh, if we get rid of 230, they'll leave speech up that we, that we do like. Uh, it seems to me that at least one of those positions has to be wrong. The sort of prediction that I've seen for what will happen if Section 230 goes away actually kind of suggests that both could be right, but neither of them will get what they want. So online services will have two different choices as to what to do to minimize their liability in a world without Section 230. They can either remove any potentially harmful speech, um, which is closer to what Democrats would want, but wouldn't exactly turn out the way that I think Democrats would like, because in removing any potentially harmful speech, online services would remove basically anything politically controversial, which includes not just conservative opinions, but a lot of liberal opinions. Or online companies could take a very hands-off approach and do absolutely no content moderation, remove nothing, even if it's illegal. Um, this is what uh, the online service CompuServe did in the world before Section 230, and it managed to escape liability because a court decided that you know, it was it was not doing anything to edit the content or moderate the content that went up on its site. 
And so it wasn't a publisher or editorializing that content in any way. And so that would also be an internet that I don't think most people would would enjoy very much. Yeah, I mean, that I think gets to one of the big problems of big tech hatred is uh, these companies are damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. I mean, if, if they take down, you know, some really egregious speech, then they're, oh, well, you're a publisher and, and you have, if they don't take down anything, then they're seen as, you know, profit hungry companies that just want to have things up to quote, make money. So really, in a lot of ways, they're in a no-win situation. They, they, they can't please everybody all the time. But don't you think that that's the point of the people that are calling for the repeals and the amendments is to hurt the companies, not necessarily the the speech itself probably isn't the main focus? I don't know. That's Maybe that's just my cynical view. I think that brings up a really great point in this 230 debate that is one of the things we want to do with our podcast is highlight that it's not just the big companies. It really will prevent a lot of these smaller startups that we're starting to see with innovative ideas for how people can communicate online from going further, because if there's no Section 230 protections, then the big companies are going to be the ones with the resources to handle any litigation around intermediary liability problems. So I think the big tech focus is is really misplaced in this debate. I'd like to know your views more on what are the dangers if it's repealed? What about if we amend it? I mean, like you said, I think that the big companies are in a position to kind of push back or to bounce back, really. But we could see a lot of the smaller players kind of go away because of fines or what have you. And I'm interested in hearing what you think the the Internet looks like in either of these scenarios. So like I mentioned, in a world without Section 230, online services would have these two different choices as to what to do. But they would also have to, again, even if they choose either one, they will still probably deal with some form of litigation um, and a lot of nuisance lawsuits, really. And this could potentially put smaller businesses under. They would have to maybe stop offering any sort of third-party content-related services completely. Or maybe, you know, platforms would start to charge for these uh, online services that have traditionally been free, like social media platforms, Um, that we have all enjoyed being able to use for free because in most cases they run on uh, advertising revenue. But if these companies had to deal with a ton of litigation, that might not be enough to cover it. You know, we might start to see some sort of subscription models emerging or something like that. You know, one of the things I think that we all do is, uh, you know, when we go to an app store, at least I do, I look at the ratings of the app store by the users of the app and this is a good app or not. You know, when I buy things, I'll, uh, oftentimes I'll, I'll look at, I just bought this thing, which I probably shouldn't have bought because it seems like it's pretty worthless, but it's this thing that you can inject carbon dioxide in water and, uh, and, and you get fizzy water. I don't know. doesn't seem to work very well. That's but, called a pandemic purchase, Rob. It definitely were influenced on Instagram to purchase that. But I did look at the reviews and some of them said, well, maybe it doesn't work that well, but a lot of them said it did. Would those sorts of reviews be uh, impacted if we got rid of 230? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Business and service reviews would definitely be something that because, you know, if a business sees that someone posts a bad review of their business or a service that they offer or one of their products, they could just you know, tell, tell an online company, Hey, we're going to sue you. If, if you leave this bad product or a bad review up, this is defamation or this is, you know, false, something like that. And without the protections of section 230, you know, maybe, maybe the online company would be more motivated to just take those bad reviews down. So if I bought the water thing, the carbon dioxide thing, again, I would see it, but there would be no bad reviews of the product. It'd be only great reviews. 
yeah, without Section 230, we could see a, a world where there are only good reviews, or we could see even a world without services that we don't think of as being third-party content like Wikipedia. Everything that's on Wikipedia is contributed by, you know, mostly volunteer editors who don't work for the nonprofit Wikipedia, who just submit the information that they know about a topic, the information that they're able to find, and then edit each other's information to make sure that it's accurate. And that's been a really good and successful project that a lot of people have found a lot of use in, but it entirely relies on third-party content. Whenever you read about a 230 debate, it's almost always now about President Trump's tweets or uh, cold election misinformation or all, all of these things. It's really all about political speech. And I think as you both have shown, and including in the forthcoming reports that the series, which is a fantastic series on sort of everything you need to know about 230, it's much more than that. That's just one component of it. But in that component where it's all political speech all the time, I, I I wonder if 230 is sort of the wrong, you know, everything is a hammer. It's all you have is a nail. Do we need something different? Is, is 230 really not the answer to this issue? And is there other other kinds of things that would address political speech challenges more effectively? Yeah, I think that I know Ashley has done a lot of work on this, so she can speak more specifically to it. But generally speaking, conflating the Section 230 debate with the online political speech debate is a mistake, because as we've said, Section 230 impacts so much more than someone's Twitter fights. And so I think separating those out and recognizing that, of course, political speech is going to be impacted by intermediary liability, but there's a lot more to it than just whether or not Twitter flags a a post. And I think that recognizing that is an important next step, especially when we start looking at some of the proposed regulations that we have coming up. Yeah, and I would add to that, this is actually something that several of the people that we talk to on our podcast end up mentioning when suggesting what they think policymakers should do about Section 230 or about the issues that are surrounding Section 230, they really want policymakers to ask, what is the problem that you're trying to solve here? Is it a problem, an issue of intermediary liability, or is it something that you think is intermediary liability or you think is captured under the big umbrella of Section 230 when it's actually not? Are you trying to solve for misinformation or hate speech or, you know, any of these specific problems? And is Section 230 really the best way to accomplish your goal here? And in some cases, it might be, but probably not in every case. Yeah, to use my analogy, if if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. If all you have is a legislature, everything is a law. So, hey, there's a law, We, we can get rid of it. Maybe that's not really the answer in this case. Maybe there are other kinds of things, uh, new kinds of public-private partnerships or other things like that. So I think that actually can get to the next question around what do you think we need to do and what kind of reforms to 230 should we be doing? So I've been looking a lot for ITIF at the different uh, proposed changes that have come through Congress or are currently in Congress to Section 230. There is a lot of noise going on and a lot of different bills suggesting a lot of different things. Some of them are a lot farther off from the mark than others. Some of them are a lot more bipartisan than others. The ones that are, you know, only geared toward Democrat critiques or only geared towards Republicans critiques of Section 230 will probably not succeed, as well as the ones that are more bipartisan. One example is the PACT Act. That's a lot more of a bipartisan approach. And it does sort of succeed in looking at issues of accountability and transparency, which are, I think, a lot of uh, at the heart of a lot of the problems that people have with online services, and especially these larger online companies. Um, It's not a perfect law or a perfect bill, but 
you know, it is starting to ask some of the right questions. Whereas some of these other bills, the the one that recently came out, the Safe Tech Act, which is Senator Warner's bill, that one, I know a lot of Section 230 proponents really don't like as much. And I see a lot of flaws with it as well. I believe Jeff Kosef, who's huge expert in Section 230, referred to it as the Swiss cheese approach. It cuts out so many holes in Section 230, creates so many exceptions in Section 230 that it essentially renders the entire law useless. And a lot of a lot of approaches, I think, sort of fall under under that umbrella as well, where, you know, Section 230 was created to be sort of a fast track to dismiss lawsuits that are just only going to end up in less speech online and greater costs to innovation. And if we if we make that fast track, you know, put a bunch of obstacles in the way, it's not a fast track anymore. And there's no point in even having the law. How would you two like to see this play out? And then sort of kind of a follow up to that, like, what do you think is likely to happen? What's your wish? And and what do you think will happen in the next, you know, 10 months, 12 months? Well, I think it would be great if we could find a way to have a bipartisan approach to Section 230 reform. If we are going to reform it, that really decides what the issue is, leaves political speech largely out of the law itself. Uh, and considers the the kind of content that people are concerned about and the the kind of moderation approaches that they're concerned about, which I know Ashley, again, has done most of the work on. She is the 230 nerd. I'm just the uh, content moderation nerd. And then is that likely to happen? I, I think we're going to see a lot of debate and we're going to see a lot of fights that bring up issues like we've seen up to, to date that might not actually relate back to the fundamental purpose and functions of Section 230. So whether we find an actual bipartisan solution is yet to be determined. And I guess I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't tell our listeners to follow your work on this issue and email or call us if you're struggling with wrapping your brain around the issue, because that's what we're here for. Anybody who wants to talk about Section 230 with me, I will always do it. Especially if you want to have me on a podcast. I love being on podcasts. (laughs) And we appreciate you being on ours, but I want you to plug yours and tell our listeners where to find you on Twitter too. Sure. I'm on Twitter at Elise underscore D. And Ashley is also on Twitter as well as our podcast on the ITIF website. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Ashley JNSN. It's hard to get a handle when your name is Ashley Johnson. (laughs) And you can find our podcast at itif.org slash 230pod or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got a trailer up now and our first few episodes we're planning to release on February 22nd, uh, which is also coincidentally the date that ITIF's series of reports on Section 230, everything you need to know about Section 230 pretty much from an ITIF perspective, uh, is also releasing on February 22nd. I am looking forward to seeing the entire series released and listening to the other podcasts. So on our podcast, not your podcast, but on our podcast, we have more episodes and great guests lined up. Uh, New episodes drop every other Monday. So we hope you continue to tune in. That's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIN at ITIFDC.